things we make what? Friends, you can't find a near a more near perfect warning for idolatry than that slogan. You may have seen that billboard on Route 22 heading west just past, I think it was MacArthur Road exit. But uh, the things that we make, make us, that is idolatry. And there's two ways to commit idolatry. How do you like that? I'm going to teach you how to do it. One is by worshiping someone or something other than the true God. That's one way to commit idolatry. You worship a false god. But the other one, it's a little deeper, it's a little more ingrained, it's harder to see. It's by worshiping the true God in a way other than the way He has taught us in His Word. That's the difference between the first and second commandment. Because when you read these two commandments, they seem to be a little blurry. What's the difference? What's, it seems like the second commandment's just the reinstatement of the first. Well, the first commandment is that we must worship the right God. The second one is that we've got to worship the right God in the right way. The first one forbids false gods. The second one forbids false worship. Listen, we might, we might turn our back on all gods, but we still have to learn to kneel before the right God. How we worship matters to God just as does who we worship. Well, if you haven't done so yet, if you could open your Bibles, you're going to need your Bibles. We're going to be flipping around a little bit in Exodus. I'm not going to ask you to leave Exodus. When we do leave Exodus, we'll put it on the screen behind me. But if you could just open it up to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, and follow along with me. We want to learn what it means, what God means in this commandment. And it beautifully divides itself into four ways. So we're going to just walk along the same division that God so cleanly gives us in His Word. Here's the first one. What is the command? Well, the command is to not imagine God. Do not imagine God. Here's what it says, verse 4. Look with me if you would. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now let me clear two things off the deck very quickly. This is not a condemnation of painting or sculpting something within creation. It's been taken that way by some people. This is not a forbiddance of art. And neither is it, or rather, it's more than just tribal pagans carving idols to their deities. This is more than just bowing down to a statue. It might might encompass that, but there's specifically something more in this command. It's more personal than that. So what are images and likenesses? Let's start there. Now I'm going to give you a warning. It's a little disclaimer in this sermon. If you've got your straw with you this morning, I don't think you're going to be able to get this sermon down. I think you're going to need a fork and a knife. You're going to need your chewing teeth. This is a thinking sermon. And I know some of you, that automatically brings you back to images, which may be breaking the second commandment, that was a joke, of social studies, and I love that subject, of sitting in class and being lectured to. 
That's not what this sermon's going to be. I think you're going to be profoundly convicted as I am. But you've got to think. We've got to be the people of God. You come to church and you learn. You don't come to church just to, to sit passively. I don't want your minds in neutral. I want you arguing with me. I want you saying, I don't know if I agree with that. I've got to go back to the text and see if that's true. But I also want some humility in all of us as we approach the text. God, what are you saying to me today? In the ancient world, we're trying to answer what are images and likenesses. In the ancient world, they knew, friends, listen, they knew that their idol or their image was not the actual deity. They knew that their gods dwelled above. That's why when Paul was doing miracles in Acts chapter 14, the people shouted out, the gods have come down to us. They know their gods are above them. They're not living fully into that idol or that image or that likeness. See, images or idols or likenesses are, are, are physical. Now listen, because I'm, I'm going to mention a word that's going to sweep us into it because I'm pretty sure none of us have figurines of false deities on our shelves in our bedrooms that we kneel before and worship. But now I'm going to bring it into us. Images, idols, or likenesses are physical or mental. There's your word. Pictures that try to capture the essence of God. Because after all, an image does make it easier to focus in worship, right? I mean, come on, when you pray, do you have the visage, the countenance of God before you? Do you picture him stroking your back as he's got you on his knee? Do you picture a gleam of a, a twinkle in his eye as he looks upon you? Have you created the way God looks in your mind? This is where we're heading. And at first, that little image represented the deity, but gradually, it takes the place of the God. Listen, pagan worshipers believed that their deity inhabited the image. Listen, they didn't believe the image was their God. They believed that their God inhabited the image and that the power of the deity was collected. It was channeled by means of the image. Friends, all that to say this, the one who controls the idol or the image controls the God. Don't you remember Jacob? When he left his father-in-law Laban, and he brought his family with him, and his wife takes her father's idols and hides them in the saddlebags. Because if you keep possession of the idol or the image or the likeness, you control, you manipulate, you have power over your God. Let me illustrate this through the power of electricity. You ready? High voltage is dangerous. It can kill you. It has to be controlled by a transformer. It has to reduce what is deadly to a proportion that it could be utilized. And divine power is dangerous. It has to be collected. It has to have a transformer that can reduce the power of the deity so that you can use it at far less risk. That transformer is the idol, the image, or the likeness. Remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant thinking that now they had control of Israel's God? Whoever has the idol has the God. 
And we see this distorted power and this temptation to create an image of Yahweh to control him. We see it almost immediately. And turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Let's look at this together. Let's all flip over there. We'll start at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. Now let me clarify something really quickly. How many golden calves did Aaron make? One. And he dedicated it, proclaiming it to be a feast to God, not God's. The singular is in view here, not the plural. So that's why your NASB or your King James or almost all Jewish translations of this don't say, make us gods, make us a god. And you're going to see that later as well. You take this in the singular. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that, is in the, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf singular. And they said, not these are your gods. They said, this is your God O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. When, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So let's see what we are talking about in this. You ready? Aaron makes a golden calf. Probably thinking he was doing God a favor because a calf symbolized power and fertility. And he made that golden calf, and unlike, now listen, you've got to hear this, you've got to get this, you're going to miss the point. Unlike what many of us think, this wasn't an idol to some pagan god. This was an image that Aaron made of Yahweh. That's why they proclaimed a feast to the Lord. All capital letters in Lord, that's Yahweh. This is one idol to one God who brought them out of Egypt, Yahweh, a feast to him. This is not a breach of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a breach, friends, of the second to worship God the wrong way. Let's say you go to India and you go into a Hindu temple and you look at all the idol statues that are ringing around that temple and there's a priest that comes up to you and you ask the priest, are these your gods? They have multiple gods in India. And the priest is going to look to you and he's going to say to you, no, these aren't our gods. These are what we, how we represent our gods. We worship our gods through them. Well, how does that represent your gods, you might ask? And he'll say to you, well, our people are a simple people. They don't understand omnipotence. So we make statues of a God with many hands. They can understand that our God has many hands that could do a lot of things all at the same time. And that one over there with all the eyes over it, our people don't understand omniscience that God knows everything. But they understand that all those eyes represent a God that can see all the things going on at one time and be aware and be knowledgeable of it. And you might say, well, that's really helpful. 
If we had something like that, we could worship God so much more easily. And so you come home, and that following Sunday, you talk your pastor and allowing you to put up on an easel a portrait of Christ up on the cross. And because your view of God is that, God, that Jesus is accepting to everybody, he wouldn't hurt a flea. He's meek and mild, and he's got a twinkle of love in his eye. You draw or you paint a feminine portrait of Christ on the altar or on the cross. Because you maximize the love of Christ and you don't know and you don't remember that nobody talked about hell as much as Jesus and the horrors of it. You reconstruct an image of the God that you want to worship and you reduce Him down to a mental image that comes from your own mind and worship Him through it. That's the breaking of the second commandment. The second commandment forbids the, ten, the sinful tendency of God's people, that would be us, to create pictures of Him that distort His true nature and to worship Him through them. Well, what's so wrong about imaging God? Well, to answer that, you now have to flip back to Exodus chapter 19 and let's get a little bit of a look into what was happening. And if you look at verse 9... And read as I, or follow along as I read. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, and this is important, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now listen, did you get a clue in there? Number one, God's going to be inhabited by a thick cloud. And secondly, the people are going to hear God speak to Moses. Now some of us have been taught to say, well, what they heard were the thunders and the rumblings and the quaking of the mountains and the trumpets. Let's find out if that's true. Moses goes down from speaking to the Lord, or rather he goes up to speak to the Lord, and, and then he goes back down and he gathers the people to come to the base of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. And it says this in verse 11, the Lord will come down, where? In the sight of all the people. God came down. What did the people see? Verse 18 tells us, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Verse 21 of chapter 20, if you flip the page, says God inhabited thick darkness. And all of a sudden, you can look behind me on the screen, Deuteronomy gives us a fantastic insight where it says, God let you see His great fire and you heard his words. Not you heard trumpets, not you heard trembling, not you heard the mountain moving from the presence and the holiness of God. You heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Friends, when God spoke the Ten Commandments to Moses, the people heard the words. In fact, there's a little clue to that even in chapter 20. And God spoke, verse 1, all these words saying, and then you go to later in the chapter when Moses goes back up to the mountain where God now explains all of his laws and his rules. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 22, he's speaking to Moses. Verse 1, it seems like, at least you could draw the inference, that he's speaking to all the people. They heard the words that God spoke. Again, Deuteronomy tells us 
They heard the Word of God, but did not see His form. Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory, chapter 5, and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we're going to die, Moses. Don't let God speak to us anymore. Just let Him speak to you. Now, friends, where am I going with this? Hang in there and grab hold of this. You ready? They did not see God's form, but they heard His voice. God is unseen by human eyes, but He has spoken clearly through His Word. And there's a reason that He didn't let Israel see His form. He knows what they would have done. He says this in Deuteronomy 4, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly, by making a carved image for yourselves. You see, the reason we don't know what God looks like is because human tendency is to visually capture Him and reduce Him to our level. Seeing is not believing, friends, contrary to the famous slogan. We've got to love Him and obey Him by faith, Hebrews says, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here we go. You ready? Drive this like an anchor into your mind. Breaking the second commandment is fundamentally about lack of faith. We want to worship a God we can see. But God must be worshipped by faith. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. So an image or a likeness is our faithless attempt to bring the invisible God into the visible. Why? Now listen, and here's the crux of the sermon. Because the way He's revealed Himself in His Word is not enough. We want a way to see Him, touch Him, and ultimately control Him. You know, Moses in the same chapter in Deuteronomy prophesies to the people that God's going to scatter them among many nations because they will not stop worshiping God through idols and images and likenesses. Yet he gives them hope. And I want you to hear this. He says in verse 30 of Deuteronomy 4, when you are in tribulation, in other words, when you're sitting in Babylon, you're sitting in Persia, you're scattered around the world and bondage to other nations, and all these things come upon you, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His image. Obey the way you saw Him? Absolutely not. You will obey His voice. And that voice has been made clear through His Word. Now, if you're like me, and friends, this was probably the second hardest sermon I have ever, ever had to put together. It is so hard to get your mind around this. It's so hard now to leave the pages of ancient history and bring it into the modern. And come on, we are modern people. We have technology. How many of us are bowing down a golden idol sitting on our shelves? Well, you know what? Somebody asked me that last night after church. I said to her, I said, listen, can I ask you a question? Would you feel in your life the same peace and security? that you would have before you go to the doctors to find out you have cancer? That you can have after you find out you have cancer? 
then what's providing you your peace and your security and your confidence? My health. Would you feel the same security and the same peace in life if you were down to $50 to your name that you had when you had $1,000 to your name? Or $10,000? Or $50,000? If the answer is no, then friends, listen, that's your idol. Because God is a jealous God and says, listen, you get your peace from me. And I'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus and it will be beyond any understanding, but my peace can get to your soul. But your idol's peace is temporary and it will never, ever last. So do we see this occurring today with Christians? I mean, it's easy to see how the second commandment is broken when you've got a crucifix hanging around your neck that has the figure of Christ on it. I mean, listen, this is the way this normally happens. It starts out, this crucifix, as an object to identify with Christ. It's used to focus your mind on Christ, but then it becomes regarded with superstitious reverence. You kiss it for good luck. You wear it for blessing. You hold it to ward off evil. If you lose it, you feel like your life's going to be a calamity. The object itself becomes holy, and it shifts the vision of the worshiper from God to the object, and from the object, what the object could give to the worshiper. That's the control of God. So it's easy to see this through the typical use of the crucifix, but what about mental images, immaterial likenesses? Let me even put this a little further. Listen, there's a reason, I think, please hear me carefully, why the Catholics and the Lutherans' version of the Ten Commandments is wildly different than ours. Did you know that? They don't really mention what we're talking about today. They take the first two commandments and make it one and almost purely consolidate it to you shall have no gods before me. Then they take the Tenth Commandment of coveting and split it out in two ways. Don't covet things, your neighbor's things, and don't covet your neighbor's wife. They don't bring to bear what we're talking about. And if you walk into a traditional, typical Catholic church, there's all sorts of statues, there's all sorts sorts of objects, and they would teach you that we're not worshiping that statue of Mary, we're venerating her, but there's a blurred line between veneration and worship, and I'll give you an example from a couple that's in our own church who grew up Catholic for most of their lives. She She had a statue of Mary. She would literally kneel before that statue and she would offer her prayers to God through Mary. And her husband came to know Christ and took that statue without her knowing about it and smashed it to little pieces and threw it out in the trash. And the next day she wondered where it went and they had one of the worst fights in their lives in their marriage. So easy, friends, for an object to become what we worship God through and they are expressly forbidden in the second commandment. What what about mental? What about immaterial objects and likenesses and images? Listen, if you're going to create an idol, it has to come from your imagination. You don't know what your God looks like. You've never seen your God. So if you're going to paint a portrait of Christ, it literally has to be from your imagination, and the likeness translates down onto the pages of art. 
And whenever we do that, we will reduce the perfection of God. We will bring it down to the image that we have formed of what he looks like and how he acts like. And we will leave the pages of Scripture in order to do it. Idolatry is always a hard issue. And this is why God says to Ezekiel, this is why Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Friends, it's very easy for this to happen. You remember the bronze serpent, right? Remember the plague of serpents that God brings to the grumbling Israelites and they begin biting the Israelites with fiery poison and people are dying and getting sick. And God says to Moses, create a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up, lift it up, let the people gaze at it, which was supposed to be not a representation of God, but an image pointing forward to the one who will be lifted up on a pole called the cross, who will kill the serpent called Satan, and will, dis- will destroy death and deliver his people from sin. But that's not what happened. Because centuries later, in the days of Hezekiah, you ever wondered what happened to that serpent? That bronze snake? It resurfaced, and now the people of Israel are worshiping the serpent on the pole and Hezekiah takes it and he breaks it into pieces and he discards it. But friends, it's too late. It made it into the heart. So Centuries later, the Gnostic Christians would unearth that idol and begin worshiping the serpent on the, on the pole because it was a serpent that let humanity free with his knowledge in the Garden of Eden. An idol... Coming from the heart. And we form mental images of God and we emphasize what we like about Him and we minimize what we don't. Friends, the best-selling book, The Shack, almost constantly, in my opinion, breaks the second commandment as it reduces God over and over down to human characteristics in ways that the Scriptures just does not do. Is idolatry is false worship of God alive today in Christians. Well, some Christians picture God as the Santa God, the vending machine God. You put your quarter of obedience in and out pops your blessing, what it is that you want. You begin to manipulate God, you think, through your obedience. Listen, when I was young, I formed in my mind a terrorist God. I was afraid that every time I sinned and fell short of the glory of God, that God was going to put a cosmic gun to my mother's head and do something bad to her. I lived with this for two years. In fact, I quit sports because my mother would go into the chiropractor in the city three times a week. She had a bad back, and I always felt whenever I sinned, she was going to get in a car accident, and I had to be there with her to protect her. When I was a little boy, that was my image of God. Do you see a God who's really not too bothered by your little sins? I mean, after all, calamity hasn't struck, so maybe, maybe he's just upset with the big things that people do. You know, nearly half of the students in evangelical colleges and seminaries, you know what they do? They, they say talking about divine judgment is wrong because God's justice and holiness is trumped by his grace. Feminist theology denies the fatherhood of God. They've created an image of a God that they prefer more in the likeness of women. Friends, when people say, I like to think of God as they are in danger of breaking the second commandment. 
People are always looking for a more user-friendly God who can be reduced by the transformer of our mental images and likenesses and adapted for our purposes. And they turn God into the man upstairs. You ever felt that if you don't spend time in the Word of God in the morning and you don't spend some time in prayer that something's going to go wrong with your day? That's an image of God that is not supported by Scripture. But God will not allow Himself to be manipulated by us. He wants us to worship Him the way He has revealed Himself in His Word. Why? Well, we just spent all that time talking about the command, so let's move quickly through the other three parts. There's a reason that we are to worship God the right way. Friends, it plainly says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Everyone worships something. If you don't know that yet, then you've got to really pray through that because we're all worshiping, we're designed and created to worship, and we worship all the time. And whatever God we bow down to, that's the God we're going to serve. You look in verse 2 of Exodus 20, and look where God brought Israel out of the house of what? Slavery, it's the same word as we just read in verse 5. If you bow down to a God who stands poised above his smite button for everything you do wrong, friends, you're going to be a slave to fear and condemnation. If we bow down to a God that's hard to please, we're going to struggle with perfectionism. If we believe that God exists for our pleasure, that the very center of his universe is us and not his own glory, then we're going to bow down to a God we're going to be serving and we're going to be slaved to a God that we think is okay when we buy something into debt that brings us happiness. God's okay with that as long as I'm happy. I'm the object of its affection. If we see God to be unconcerned with little sins, you know those fudging the numbers during tax season, those little lies, that little gossip, it gets swallowed up into indifference. If we imagine God to be untrustworthy, then friends, I'm going to tell you, we're going to be like the Allstate commercials. We're going to have insurance policy backup plans for when mayhem strikes. And this is what Israel did with Baal. Now let's walk through this. Men, you're the provider, right? And you're living in an agricultural society in Israel. And if your crops don't grow, you can't harvest. And if you can't harvest, you can't provide for your family And if things get bad enough, you'll get like the days of Elisha when moms ate their babies. There's probably nothing more painful than slow starvation. And you know what? Sometimes hordes of locusts devour your crops. Where is God? And sometimes rain doesn't come in the rainy season. Where is God? God can't be depended on. We've got to get a backup God. And all of a sudden, here comes the weather God named Baal. And if you bow down to the weather God of Baal, then he will pick up the slack when God drops the ball. Ladies, there's nothing worse in Israel than infertility. You know why? Because if you can't have a baby, that was the sentence from God that you had been so shameful to him that he will not even open your womb and provide you a baby. 
The entire village looked at you as a marked, condemnation-filled woman. And so when you can't have a baby, God's dropping the ball. He says He opens and closes the womb. How come He's not giving me a baby? I've got to go find a baby from another source. Here's Baal, the weather and fertility God. And I will give money at His altar to get Him to work if it will bring me a baby. You see, when we don't trust God, when we see the history of our lives as God dropped the ball, then it's going to create a suspicion about His goodness. And along the crack of that suspicion is a weak and wobbly faith that's going to say, I've got to have a backup plan for when God fails me. We begin to serve that backup plan, and that backup plan begins to replace the God who says, you can trust me. I have never failed you. He's a jealous God. And he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. It means that we cannot, we must not create any image or likeness, physical or mental, and then begin to worship God through it and order our lives around it because God's jealous. You know what that means, right? You know what holy jealousy means? It doesn't mean that you want something with envy that your neighbor has. That's not what jealousy means here. What this means is, what happens when a man comes home and finds his wife in bed with another man? It's a burning passion. And God is burning with passion for His glory. He will not give His glory to another. He will not tolerate when His people try to bring Him down and reduce Him to a manageable level. And He will not tolerate. He burns with passion when His people move to another God or create a mental image about Him that is contrary to Scripture. He's saying, in effect, you will have nothing less than my full love and I will settle for nothing less than your full devotion to me. That's verse 5. That's the reason, but there's a warning. And friends, we need to listen to this because we seem to swallow this in this concept of grace This isn't really applicable anymore because God is gracious. Well, God was gracious in the Old Testament. And He was full of mercy in the Old Testament. But He writes, out of His grace and mercy, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This is a frightening verse. Fathers, let me speak to you. Jewish woman often was married by age 13 or 14 and a mother by age 15 and by age 30, a grandmother and by age 45, a great grandmother. And if she lived to 60, a great, who is that? A great, great grandmother. You know, you always hear on the news, a pastor gets shot from behind by a, I mean, I don't know about, come on. What did you do that? I don't mean would you shoot your pastor. I mean, would you turn around and look? Four generations, dads, right in your own home. You're living in a village where they all, because you're the patriarch, are beckoning to your influence and your respect and your authority. And if you begin to create a mental or a physical likeness of God that reduces him down and begin worshiping God through that distorted image, all four generations are going to go astray power of the Father. Dads, we've got to know God. 
and teach our children right about who He is and how to worship Him and uphold and guard the second commandment. It's a terrible thing to pass on our children, a twisted caricature of God. But there's a promise, look what it says, but showing steadfast love to thousands, or at some versions, to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. What a great difference between God's kindness and His wrath. Friends, His wrath extends to the fourth generation, His steadfast love to the thousandth. There is no humanly designed image, whether it's physical or mental, that can adequately capture the essence of God. He would not appear in His form. He appeared through His voice. C.S. Lewis wrote something in the midst of his grief after his wife, Joy, died of cancer. I I want to read it to you. My idea of God, he says, is not a divine idea. Here's what he's saying. Any mental image we create contrary to Scripture is not God's reality of existence. Yes, He's the crack in the mountain that we can hide in when we're being overwhelmed by life. Yes, He is, he, he is the wings of the mother eagle that flap over the eaglet us to protect us. And yes, He is the sun that brings His favor and He's the rain that brings us sustenance and He's the God that knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. All imagery that we can rightly and should invoke about how He lives, how He functions, and what He does. But when we create an image of God outside of Scripture, it reduces Him down to a manageable deity that we can control. And Lewis says this, it has to be shattered time after time. You know how God shatters them? Right here. This is the hammer of God to renew our mind and to break into pieces mental images of Him that break the second commandment. God shatters it Himself, Lewis says. Could we not say that this shattering is one of the marks of God's presence? You see, our images reduce God, they diminish His majesty, and they attempt to put Him under our control. Friends, God isn't God as we understand Him. Don't ever let anybody start a sentence with that. God is as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And he has provided for us a rich image of himself, and it's in the form of Jesus Christ. This is the image that God himself has given to us. It's from Colossians, who is Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. You know what that word image means? It means that which is the same form as something else. Jesus is the exact imprint of God, his Father, according to Hebrews. Let me close with this, and that doesn't mean shut your minds. You're ready? Just hang on for 30 more seconds. We cannot create images of God, physical or mental, because, friends, listen, it, they will inevitably distort His nature. 
The image of God that's been given to us is the son, Jesus. You know Jesus. You know God. You worship Jesus. You worship God. You lift up Jesus. You lift up God. You denigrate Jesus. You denigrate God. Somebody yesterday evening told me after the sermon, she says, came up to me, she says, Pastor Tim, I think I understand a little more how my knowledge of God gets to here, and there is so much above it, I don't even know what I don't know. His ways are above ours. Who can comprehend? You know what, friends? Every single day we spend in eternity, we will know God a little bit more, and we will never in the pages of infinite history get to the depths and the bottom of who he is. He will always surprise us with more about himself. If we know that, now listen, if we could grab hold of that, then some days, friends, we won't find a way out of our beds. There will be days where the coals from the altar sear us and we say, woe is me, I am undone, God's holiness has broken through, I've seen who he really is through his revealed word, and I cannot even function, my knees are shaking, I don't know what to do but to fall down in worship. That's upholding the second commandment. That's worshiping God in the right way. Outside of his revealed word, we will reduce him to control him. That's the breaking of the commandment. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Lord, thank you for the conviction that many of us are feeling, I'm sure. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that we need your grace every day. Father, fill us with knowledge of your Son. Fill us with knowledge of, knowledge of your Word, of you through your Word. May we worship you, the only God, the right way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.